Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Hollywood Remixed, a topical podcast about inclusion and representation in culture and entertainment. I'm Rebecca Sun, Senior Editor of Diversity and Inclusion at The Hollywood Reporter. If you're checking us out for the first time, here at Hollywood Remixed, each episode is dedicated to a single theme, a type of character, storyline, or identity that has traditionally been underrepresented or misrepresented in mainstream culture. This week, we're discussing undocumented immigrant narratives with two very special guests. The impetus of this episode is Focus Feature's new film, Blue Bayou, which comes out September 17th and tells the story of a Louisiana man who discovers that when he was adopted from Korea as an infant, his new family never filed the proper paperwork to get him naturalized. Now married with a baby on the way, he faces deportation to a country that is foreign to him. And more importantly, away from the only home he has ever known. Justin Chan, the director and star of the film, will join us later in the episode to talk about the various real-life inspirations behind creating this story. But first, I'm very excited to welcome the great Jose Antonio Vargas as our guest expert for this episode. Jose is the first Pulitzer winner ever to join our podcast, but I'm getting ahead of myself. When it comes to someone who can speak both to the experience of living in this country without documentation, as well as to the significance of media representation on this issue, he is the one. Jose is a journalist who was part of the Washington Post reporting team that won a Pulitzer Prize in 2008 for its coverage of the Virginia Tech shootings. Three years after that, Jose disclosed his status as an undocumented immigrant in an essay for the New York Times Magazine. Now, you can read that essay online or learn more about his personal story in the CNN documentary Documented or his memoir, Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Since then, Jose has become an Emmy-nominated filmmaker, a Tony-nominated producer, as well as the founder of Define American, the media advocacy nonprofit that seeks to change cultural attitudes about immigrants through harnessing the power of storytelling and media all of which obviously makes him the ideal guest expert today. Jose, thank you so much for joining us today. It is a real honor uh, for me to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> you know, so when we talk about the power of storytelling, and particularly when it comes to undocumented narratives, I think you're pretty much the foremost authority on this subject, both because of your uh, capacity as the founder of Define American, which we'll talk a lot about, and also because of your own personal story and your experience with sharing that narrative. I, I, I was kind of debating whether to which, which aspect to start with, but I think maybe if you don't mind, we can start with um, the personal experience first um, for, I don't know, the people who somehow aren't, ha haven't been familiar with your work for the past decade. But in 2011, you wrote um, 
a New York Times Magazine essay in which you really shared um, and kind of came out about your own undocumented status. People can go read that for themselves. They can go read Dear America, your subsequent book for themselves. But what I'm curious about is what impacts have you seen or have you experienced from the act of sharing your own narrative? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Just an easy one to start with. Uh, Just an easy one to start with. Well, you know, I, um, so just just a bit of a background, right? So, I I came here from the Philippines at 12, found out I was undocumented when I was 16. And then I I, I say this because it's true. Like the saving grace for me was finding journalism because if I hadn't, if my English teacher hadn't said that I should be a journalist, then I would not have had a career. I would not have had something else, something really, you know, almost like an identity, right? I mean, I mean, for me, being a journalist has been kind of like an identity to make, to kind of focus all my energy on. <laughs> and in many ways I spent, you know, from the age 17 till I was 30, which is when that essay was published, I spent like 13 years of my life writing about other people, <laughs> which is what, you know, journalists do, right? Like I have to report on other people um, so that I don't have to deal with myself, so I think to answer your question more directly, um, telling my story and dealing with myself, you know, like w- once you write that out, you make it real, right? And so I didn't really understand my own mental health and my, my like the psychological toll that all of this has taken, right? You know, I, I say that when you're undocumented, you, you you live kind of three realities. You lie a lot, right? Because this is what you do. You lie to get jobs. You lie to people when they ask you, why haven't you seen your mom or your relatives in the Philippines? Um, you lie, you, you, you pass, you try to pass. Like the first thing I did when I found out I was here illegally was to get rid of my Tagalog accent. <laughs> which is really thick. And I did that through watching every possible movie and film and listening to every CD and tape I could borrow from the Mountain View Public Library. And then you, then you hide, right? You try to hide a lot. Uh, You hide from the government, even though the government knows you're here, sort of, because, you know, I've been paying taxes. Like it's been always so interesting to me that ever since I was 18 years old, I was paying to the IRS. So the IRS knows I'm here, but I'm hiding from the Department of Homeland Security. Like, don't they talk to each other, (laughs) right? So once I kind of wrote my story and owned my story, and then realized that I was surrounded by all these other people, all the other community of like storytellers who are telling their stories so that they can see themselves and have other people see them. I think for me that that was the biggest impact, right? Is how do we tell our stories so we can face ourselves and then build community with each other? Mm-hmm. And, and that community, that was one of the things that kind of struck me when I was reading your story because a lot of times I think, you know, there is a very, there's a very specific media portrayal of what an undocumented immigrant looks like, what their circumstances are, that sort of thing. We're obviously going to talk about that. 
But I think what struck me was that you had, you know, you had teachers and you had editors that who knew you as a person, who knew you as a student, who knew you as a hardworking, very enterprising journalist, and and therefore um, were invested in your life, you know, and did yeah. invest in your life. And 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 again, that's the kind of reality that I think the media, and when I say the media, not just what you read in the news and watching the news and listening to the news, but also like the television shows and movies we consume, right? That's the part of the reality of community that I think we as storytellers haven't really told the story of. Like there's a lot to do there, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. you know, and, and this is me putting kind of my storytelling hat on, right? So I got, I moved to this country in 93. It just so happens that the the 90s was the decade in which this country saw more immigrants, undocumented and documented, move to this country, mostly from Latin America and mostly from Asia, many from the Caribbean and from Africa, right? Like the black immigrant population, for example, one out of 10 black person in this country is a black immigrant, hmm. right? Like the black immigrant population has increased five times since 1980, Right. And yet, when we think about immigrants, we have this vision of the border, the wall, Mexico, to the point that I actually think, you know, we owe Mexicans an apology for having racialized this issue as much as we have. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, from the very beginning, for me, the goal was how do we tell this more integrated, more community based? right? Stories of immigrants in this country and how we make it in this country, because we can't exist without community, right? And, and again, for me, that's where I, I find that's, that, that's fertile ground for narrative, you know? We'll mention here that, you know, what you're speaking of is not only from personal experience, and it's also not just anecdotal, because your organization, Define American, has done studies that, you know, that actually give you, like, statistics about how immigrants are portrayed, the demographics of these immigrant characters. And so I'll share a few now, and we'll go through these, um, because I think they're very relevant to this discussion. You know, first of all, um, you know, my hope is that on this show, we'll be able to, you know, have a lot of different episodes dedicated to different facets of the immigrant experience. Today, we're specifically talking about stories about the undocumented um, experience. And it's interesting because uh, in a study that Define American published in partnership with the Norman Lear Center at USC Annenberg, um, you guys found that Nearly, it's about two thirds of immigrant characters on television were either undocumented or seeking asylum. But in real life, it's, only, it's less than a quarter. It's 24% yeah. <laughs> of, of American immigrants are undocumented. So the first question is why is there such an over representation mm. of undocumented, uh, undocumentation on television? And I have to say, like, this is where the Obama administration and the Trump administration, right, followed by the Trump administration. Like, I was, a, I was a political reporter for the Washington Post when Obama ran for president. And I'm still kind of wrapping my head around the reality that, you know, the, the, the undisputable fact that the Obama administration deported more immigrants than any other administration mm -hmm. in modern history. Mm -hmm. So that happened and then Trump happened, right? Which of course is when we saw 
you know, like where undocumented people, the people he called illegals and the, un, you know, the undesirables and all of that. So I think because of what was happening and I think the fact that we were waking up to, you know, this horrible reality that undocumented people lived through, I think because of that, we've seen an overrepresentation of undocumented stories, right? And for me, what's tricky here is that too often, too often, there are exceptions, we, we paint undocumented people as if they're islands onto themselves, as if, again, they don't exist in this larger community of people, when in reality, undocumented people live with people who are U.S. citizens or legal permanent residents, right? Like, just one perfect example, you know, I'm Filipino and I have 30 relatives here, just here in the Bay Area where I live, and I'm the only undocumented person out of those 30 people. Like, that's just a fact, right? So you can't, in many ways, we, we were kind of overcompensating and overrepresenting the undocumented experience without looking at the community of people around them. So I think that's what, that's what we saw happen. And now, what does the correction <laughs> look like, right? It means that we focus on family, extended family. It means we try to understand, you know, here in America, I mean, this is why the state of California, if you put the Latino population and the Asian population together, we make up the majority of the state, right? That happened because of immigration in the past few decades. So you can't really separate immigration and race, and you can't separate immigration from family, mm -hmm. right? Those, those are married. Those are linked, Right. There, there does seem to be, I mean, I think that, I think you are start, we're starting to sometimes see more and more of these narratives. I, unfortunately, I don't think they're given a lot of oxygen, but the, the <laughs> yeah. toll and the cost of the, the, those connections, I think that deportation, you know, has traditionally been portrayed as just, you know, you're just like, cutting out something that's isolated and then, you know, yeah, you're, no you're extricating, right? You, you, it's almost like you're just taking out one tooth and then mm -hmm. that's, then you're done. Right. No ramifications whatsoever, you know, stateside precisely. And, 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 and in truth, and I mean, and I think that this is what, you know, later in this show, we'll, we'll talk to Justin Chan who directed Blue Bayou. And that is about a man who's enmeshed in his, in his community. life and in, in his community, precisely. Yeah. He has a wife, you know, he has a child on the way. And these are the realities that, you know, and he has friends and he has friends, friends around him. And so, I mean, that's what I really actually gravitated to a lot on that film. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and this is, I think what, what, what we are now seeing, and this is what we're hoping at Define America and what, what, what we can do. And just to kind of explain a little bit more. So when I came out a decade ago, I can't believe it's been a decade ago. Mm -hmm, um, yeah. <laughs> it's almost um, exactly to the day that the New York Times Magazine essay came out, I think. I think it was like September yeah. 2011. Yeah. So I, I asked three of my friends, all of whom were all media people, um, including Jimmu Green, who was at the time, she was just heading um, Rock the Vote in the Women's Media Center, Alicia Menendez, who now has her show on MSNBC, and Jake Brewer, uh, my friend who unfortunately passed away. Um, so I recruited them to start this organization with me from the very beginning. How do we put stories at the center? 
<laughs> the reality is in this country, and all you got to do is look at same-sex marriage and LGBTQ rights. I mean, look at trans representation, right? Which is astounding to me. Um, look at the civil rights movement, right? In this country, culture, you cannot change the politics of an issue unless you change the culture in which people see the issue and touch the issue and feel the issue. So from the very beginning, it was about how do we use stories to liberate, <laughs> right? All these stories of people that would make us better understand what the border, what the wall, what immigration really is all about. So here we are 10 years later, and I have to say that the biggest success of the organization is the way we've been working. I mean, I can't believe it. Like it's been 10 years now, but just in the past few years, you know, getting into writers' rooms, um, we have worked with like over a hundred projects now across 23 networks. Uh, studios and streaming platforms, helping writers, producers, and directors, right? How how do we better, more humanely, and more with complexity tell immigrant stories? So that's what we've been doing. And I think that the challenge that faced, you know, I don't know if I should say faced or continues to face uh, your organization is is not, it's not even so much that immigrant narratives were being ignored completely, like in the larger news media. In other words, it's not like the average American who just like watches, you know, news on TV or whatever, like has no conception whatsoever of of what an immigrant is like. Unlike, you know, there are some aspects, like some communities that I cover, like, for example, like Native American representation, oh, where there's yeah. just like a void, you know. A void, yep. This is one in which you kind of just have to, you, you have to sort of work against a, um, like a counter narrative that that's that that's being pushed and 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 certain tropes you know like that that had to be undone um for example and, and i'll throw out another statistic from uh define american and norman lear's research the overrepresentation of criminality you know uh, yeah there so just you know, here's, you know, just stating a fact here, statistically immigrants, and this includes undocumented immigrants, commit less crime than us native born Americans, right? Like that, that was... That's a fact. That's a fact. It's a <laughs> statistical a fact. fact. However, there's an overrepresentation of criminality, which we obviously saw with, um, you know, Trump built his, I mean, he launched mm -hmm. his campaign off of that. Um, but you kind of, we kind of also see that even in narrative television too, you know? Um, and so here's, I guess, maybe a devil's advocate question of sorts. Yeah. How much do you think that has to do with just the dramatically compelling nature of crime in general? Mm. Like, oh, yeah. it's not personal to immigrants. We just, we just love writing stories about crime because we're a procedural or whatever. Well, and I actually think that's a great question because it's about nuance, <laughs> right? And this is why stories are important because it's probably one of the few places in our public, in the public square that we can, that we have to deal with complexity and nuance, right? So if you have an undocumented character, and we see this character a lot on Fox News, right? In which, oh, they're rapists or they, they, they're, they're robbers, they stole something. So that's actually a crime. But how do you not conflate that with people's immigration status. So to be in this country illegally, right, is not a criminal offense, right? And yet those two things have been so conflated, right? As if, as if, and, and again, even the term illegal, how do you legalize people you call illegal? You don't. 
in some ways, the language really tells us how stuck we are, right? Like we're not even describing, oh, did they overstay their visa? Oh, were they adopted when they were kids, <laughs> right? And then their parents did not fill paperwork and it fell on a certain timeline. So that's how they got to be undocumented, right? Like almost 50% of the people in this country who are here without authorization, you know, flew on a plane to get here. Flew on a plane to get here. So they didn't they didn't cross the Mexican border. Right. Right? They so didn't scale a wall or anything like this that. This is this is where description, characters, this is where all of that come into play. And the journalists in me that, you know, and this is why research for us at Define American, you know, like we're one of the few only organizations with really um, a research department. There's a woman named Sarah Lowe, our research director that oversees the research because I, as a journalist, you know, as you know, Rebecca, one of the first things we have to learn is not assume anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how do we know that we know what we know? <laughs> right? Exactly. So research is really important for us at Define American. And it's been astounding looking at the research and then looking at the reality of, so you have journalists that had, don't really quite understand the facts of the issue that they're supposed to be reporting on. And then you have storytellers narrative, you know, film, TV, whose job it is to tell the truth, right? So the balance of the truth and facts, <laughs> there are many things that can be in fact, you know, can, can, cannot be factual, but may ring true, right? So that is kind of the complex part of our work. And that's why, you know, at Define American, we have an entertainment media consulting team and we actually have also a journalism news media strategy because we have to do both, right? We can't do one without the other. Exactly. I mean, I, w- I was trying, I was thinking about that. I'm so glad that you teased out that dynamic, especially when it comes to um, storylines revolving around this type of subject matter. There is such a relationship between the entertainment media community and the news media community. And sometimes it, it's like, it's almost like a pipeline where, you know, there's a whole genre of television that's ripped from the headlines, yeah. you know, television, right? And so if these creators are getting their inspiration, f- you know, for their, for their storylines from the news media, let's back it up. And let me ask you about that news media component. You know, in Define Americans' experience, what kinds of immigrant stories are journalism outlets generally interested in covering? And has it changed a little bit? You know, over- <laughs> so what we're actually just getting the journalism partnership strategy, you know, off off the ground. And what we're trying to figure out is where can we be most useful, right? Um, but to answer your question most directly, what I'm seeing a lot as a journalist and is that we are so, because of the way the issue is framed, which is from a political perspective, what's happening in DC, the the fight in Congress, right? How, I mean, look, I'm 40 years old. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how long, how many more years it's going to take for me to wait for this immigration reform that I've been waiting for since I was 19. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Half your because life, Congress yeah. perpetual, you know, perpetual, you know, this 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 state of kind of just um, we're j- it, it, it's not moving. Right. So because we have, because the news media focuses so much on the politics of the issue, we haven't focused as much on the processes of the issue. The number one question, Rebecca, I get asked every day as actually as I'm sitting here, I just got an email from somebody saying, why don't you just get legal? 
Oh, God, never, that, that never occurred that to you before. The number <laughs> one question I get, and it doesn't matter, by the way, it can be asked. I just spoke with an editor last night. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna divulge who it was because I respect the newest organization. Who was like, "Wait, you're still here illegally? I'm sure you could have fixed this by now." And I'm like, "How? Im, you know, immaculate conception? Like, how am I supposed to? Is there like a miraculous immigration reform thing that I don't know about? Or do people think that just because you know I am, it you comes know, with a I'm, Pulitzer, <laughs> like?" <is> it- <laughs> Or, or that because maybe she was like, well, I, you know, you're such a public person. I thought that you would have fixed this by now. Or as if, again, fixing it. Like, do I just have to call a plumber? Like, how does this work, right? So the process of immigration. And, you know, storytelling for me is about process, right? And we saw some of that, by the way, on Blue Bayou, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We saw kind of the process of, wait, how did this happen? What, what does it mean to undo something? So that's why I really appreciated, you know, I really appreciate that film because that's what we need to, and one film is not enough, (laughs) right? We need more films. We need more episodes. I mean, if I can talk to the law and order people and be like, yo, can we just do an entire season of this where we actually just explain in an entertaining, but also informative way, the process of immigration in this country? Right. Right. I mean, because... Yes, crime is dramatically compelling, but honestly, that process, that process of immigration contains all of the hope, the disappointment, the heartbreak, Mm. the try. I mean, like if you're looking for a a dramatically, you know, volatile situation, um, I I know what you're talking about. I mean, I I think that that for people who haven't seen Blue Bayou yet, um, I believe this is one of the scenes that they've put up on YouTube, but they're in the lawyer's office and the lawyer uh, outlines his options, yeah. you know, yeah. you can yep. like stand trial and, and hope that you win, uh, or you can go, go back, quote unquote back. Cause he hasn't been back since he was an infant back to Korea for like 10 years and then come back, you know, miss the birth and first 10 years of your daughter's life. And by the way, that's um, not guaranteed that you can come back. Like Precisely. That, was, and that it's also, was the same option given to me. Like, hey, you can try to come back, but, you know, we can't do that. We can't. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. And if you lose, if you stay and try to make your case, but you lose the trial, then you get a permanent ban. So, uh, and, and for me, though, this is why it's important to kind of differentiate. And thank you, because you're absolutely right, Rebecca, that there is a correlation between the, me- the news media we consume and the television shows and movies that we're consuming and how, what is their relationship with each other? And then how, as you said, what is the counter narrative strategy? And that is what we formed at Define American. And that's why if you're listening to this and if you're a producer, writer, or director, you know, we have a media reference guide um, where we actually lay out, here are all the tropes to avoid. <laughs> here are all the terms you should know, right? So so again, we, we as, as a writer myself and as a filmmaker myself right i am i'm sensitive to the tasks of the creative you know the the tasks of being creative in the creative process right like writers don't want to be told how to write 
They want to feel free to write. But writers, I would also argue, have a responsibility. The moment you start writing, you belong in a space bigger than yourself. So what is your responsibility, right? And what is your task to tell something as as humanely and as accurately as you can? I, I, I can't think of anyone that I know, a TV writer or a director or producer, who want to deliberately mislead people. They don't want to do that. Right, so we have this media reference guide, and if you are working on a show and you want to work with people who know about this issue, please, you know, contact us. Right, like uh, this is where this is what we've made kind of our bread and butter. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, all of this information is available on defineamerican.com. I mean, and it's just, it's a resource that's available for storytellers. Um, if, if somebody isn't familiar, well, now you don't have an excuse. Um, <laughs> you've listened to this episode and we're going to hold you accountable. Um, another thing uh, from your study that I thought was interesting, and this is kind of illustrative of how how writers treat characters is, I've never seen this in any other type of diversity or demographic study, which is you delineate, you differentiated between what you called storyline episodes and character mm. episodes, you yeah. know, in, in terms of analyzing how immigrant cre uh, characters are treated. It seemed to me, and you tell me if this is not quite the right definition, it seemed like storyline episodes are more like the immigrant characters there to like service a plot AKA the emphasis is on the storyline versus character episodes. They tend to be series regulars. They tend to be, I mean, I guess more multidimensional characters. I don't know. Lack of a better term. And, 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 and you see them, you know, like for example, at Define American, we've worked with a million little things, right? That, that, that show on ABC, there's a character named Tyrell, right? With this undocumented storyline. And we actually saw it play out throughout the season. So meaning it's this character that you're introduced to and you're introduced to this character in a, you know, in a three-dimensional way, which is hopefully how writers write the character, right? And then you get to see kind of what, what they're facing. I mean, for that specific character, right? Um, his mother, Martine, was deported back to Haiti. And for us, that was another another show that we're excited to work on because it, it was about introducing this undocumented black storyline, right? Um, so on a, on a show called Superstore on NBC that really kicked off our consulting practice, you know, we saw the character of Mateo for four seasons as this three-dimensional character who happens to be undocumented. And then, you know, I, 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 was, I was new to this term, parasocial. So viewers ended up having this kind of relationship with him as if he's really their friend, right? Oh, my friend just got picked up on, you know, by, by ICE, which is actually what happened, right? And what's interesting about that is we live in a country where people may think that we're integrated because, you know, we all watched the VMAs or we all saw the Super Bowl. But as somebody who's, you know, before the pandemic, I was traveling nonstop, right? I've been to many places in this country where the only way they would know an immigrant is the news that they consume and the television shows they watch, the only the only knowledge they have of immigrants is literally through the media, right? And that's why these characters, and that's why for us, we prefer to work on characters that, you know, that are actually that we see them grow. Of course, you know, we we've worked with 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 TV and um, TV episodes where they just 
want to insert that one undocumented character for crime one episode. Of the week. <laughs> crime of the week, right? <laughs> right. Um, and we're, yeah. So we, we want to be helpful as much as possible. But we know, we found in our research that actually having characters, recurring characters that we people can develop relationships with is actually much better in terms of humanizing this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I think biases are are revealed in what kinds of characters get to be those like season long characters versus the one-offs, you know, yeah. the, the yeah. storyline characters tend to be undocumented, 62% of them were undocumented and almost the exact same percentage were Latino, which again shows you how racialized that status has has become. Whereas uh, white immigrants are usually found in character episodes, um, yeah. Asian immigrants, which I'm going to assume is like East Asians, like fresh off the boat, you know, yes. like, right. And so it's a very specific type that you usually get. And this is why, again, you know, I I hope that this is really a moment since 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 you know part of the the diversification of Hollywood is you know representation matters right and making sure that it's not only in front of the camera but behind the cameras right as 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 we see and continually see kind of how writers rooms are being diversified this is where how do we how do we know that there isn't a single asian story that when you're telling an asian story there's a filipino story a korean story a vietnamese story and a chinese story right like in the same thing with latinx people Right, the Cuban experience. I, as a Filipino, I have more in common with Puerto Ricans than I do with Chinese people, because the history of colonialism in Puerto Rico and the Philippines is actually pretty parallel, right? Th- than it is with me and with the Philippines and the relationship with Korea or China, right? So this is where I think the the complexities of histories and people's experiences. I actually think of that as a great opportunity for storytellers, you know. Uh, it's a challenge, yes, but it's an opportunity. It totally is. I mean, I don't know what is not inherently intriguing just about learning a nuance. What is not inherently intriguing about learning a nuance that you just didn't realize before rather than resorting to the same tropes? You spoke about that parasocial relationship, right? That that people, audience members can develop with characters, particularly, I think, in television because, yep. you know, you see them on a long-term basis. And again, I will say this is not just like anecdotal. You guys studied it, you know, Define American did a study where you not just like, you know, did the stats and the data of like on-screen characters, but you actually surveyed how viewing immigrant narratives, you know, on, in television shows actually have impacted people's opinions about immigration, impacted people's opinions about policy. You know, what are some, you know, sort of before we go into our closing questions, what are some of those top line results that you found? Well, I mean, w- what was interesting was how did it change their, their, their attitude, but then how did it impact their behavior? Right. So being, for example, being exposed to a character like Mateo, right, it actually compelled people to either attend a rally or to contact their congressional member. Right. And for me, what's really more most important, too, is once you are introduced to a character, do you tell your friends about it? Like, do you tell your relatives about it? Because that's the thing. I, I actually think in the time that we're living in right now in many ways, the most important activist thing you can do is to be an activist within your own network of people, 
right? And not assume, <laughs> do not make any assumptions that your friends and your coworkers and relatives think and believe what you think and believe. Because where do they get that information? I mean, the amount of counter-programming, Rebecca, that I have to do with my Filipino relatives is immense. Like I, you know, I used to just call out people on Twitter and then I realized that I'm calling out strangers that I don't know and I'm not even calling out my uncles and my aunts. Mm. <laughs> so I've spent <laughs> the past couple of years kind of focusing on, you know, calling in, not calling out all my relatives who, because they watch Fox News, right, because they've been Republican, because many of them are, are military people, um, I have to actually constantly counter program, right? So what, what we're finding is once you're introduced to a character, it actually impacts not only your behavior, but your action. And thank you, Rebecca, for pointing out the research part of this. And, you know, the Norman Lear Center is as good as it gets when it comes to research, right? And so we wanted to make sure that it's not, you know, as, as a journalist myself, I remember when I would get some of these research studies that are like, wait, how did you know? How did you do that? What's the methodology here? Oh, you talked to five people, <laughs> right? Like, that's what we call anecdotal, which is great. Thank you for doing that. But guess what, right? Like, so to me, rigor and research is really important and we've invested money in it and it's not cheap. <laughs> research is not cheap. And you, and exactly. And so I, I really encourage people that the study is available for free online for anybody to read the report in full. But I, I'm glad that you mentioned not just the attitudes, but it does impact actions, people's willingness to go out and actually, you know, um, sign a petition or tell a person, you know, share with somebody about what they learned. You know, as we wrap up, we always ask every guest uh, two questions, and I'll give them both to you at the same time, because some people only like to answer one of them, which is perfectly <laughs> fine. It's basically as we reflect on what Hollywood has given us so far, and I'll extend, I'll broaden it beyond Hollywood, and you can just talk about media in general. You know, is there an example of um, a narrative, a treatment that you would sort of request a do-over for? You know, like, ugh, I, I don't know if that was, you know, that was a little problematic. Um, and then conversely, is there a hidden gem? Something that somebody who is, you know, checking out this episode and is like, huh, I'd really like to see, um, experience or be exposed to uh, a narrative about, specifically about the undocumented experience um, that you would recommend that would really teach me something in a good way. Gosh, that's okay. I can only answer one of those questions sure. because if I were to answer the first one, we would be here forever. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, 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 the I want to focus on the positive. So I'm thinking about the hidden gem. And I know that, I know that you're going to be talking to, to Justin too. And I have to say for me, you know, clearly that's not a TV show, but I just watched it a couple of weeks ago and, and I'm still thinking about it. How specific that character is to see an Asian, an Asian American man who's trying to figure out what being Asian means, right? And then to have this Southern accent because he lives in New Orleans, right? And to have this relationship with, with, with his wife who happens to be white and with a stepdaughter who happens to be white. It was all those specific things that I'm so hungry for representation that I felt kind of elevated just by seeing it. Right. And then the lawyer, you know, and then that scene that you that you just described a few minutes ago, that lawyer is African-American. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Von, the so, great Vondi Curtis Hall. The yeah. great Vondi Curtis Hall. And this film comes from Macro, 
which is increasingly becoming one of my favorite, <laughs> right? In terms of their investment on storytelling from, from people who are underrepresented. So I find, I found so many gems in Blue Bayou and, and knowing that Justin not only wrote it and directed it, but stars in it, I, I would hope that seeing that film would inspire other storytellers to add to this ecosystem of stories that we need to tell. And he did the most amazing thing that I actually got chills as I was watching it, is by the end of that movie, clearly he was inspired by all the real stories. So it's the melding of the uh, the adoptees that you've seen in the news, right? So then he did this, you know, carousel, right? Of pictures of real people, real adoptees who have either gotten deported or are going through deportation proceedings right now. I just thought it was a tremendous gesture from an artist. So that to me is a gem, a real gem. That's great. That was, yeah, that, that, that closing credits, that coda is very powerful. I will give, uh, you know, since I think, you know, you're, you're too humble to do it. I'll say as my hidden gem, because there's nothing more powerful than a real life story. You know, for those who haven't checked it out, you could, it's still available on the New York Times website, you know, read oh. Jose's 2011 essay in which he kind of goes, you go public with, with your own status. And, and if you want more, you know, you have a whole book, uh, Dear America on it. Um, so I'll, I'll recommend that. As, as my hidden gem resource, as well as define American. If you're, if you're a storyteller and, and you're just looking for a resource, you, you want to try to get this right. You know, there's a whole group of experts who are available yeah. to, to help. They've been consulting on film and television projects for a decade. So Jose, thank you so much. This conversation was, was so useful and really, really helpful. And I, and I hope it helps a lot of other people as well. Thank you so much for having me. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Justin Chan is an actor and filmmaker who starred in the Twilight franchise, the studio comedy 21 and Over, and Benson Lee's Soul Searching, to name just a few of his credits. As a director, his past two features hewed more closely to his own background growing up in Southern California. 2019's Miss Purple is about two estranged siblings in Koreatown trying to come together to take care of their terminally ill father, while 2017's Skook adds the Korean-American perspective to a story about the 1992 L.A. riots. Gook won the Audience Award in the next section at the Sundance Film Festival and also earned Justin the Someone to Watch Award at the Independent Spirit Awards. His latest film, Blue Bayou, explores aspects of the Asian-American experience that are true to life but seldom seen on screen. 
those who grew up in the Deep South, those who are transracial adoptees, and those who discover in adulthood that they are undocumented. Justin, thanks so much for joining us. I saw Blue Bayou actually a couple of months ago, and I thought it was exquisite. So this is really exciting for me today. I wanted to start by asking you, you know, the genesis of this story. I mean, you know, you wrote the film, you directed it. What was the seed that really sparked your interest in exploring this narrative? Well, you know, I think um, sort of what's become my purpose with my storytelling has been to bring you know, empathy to Asian Americans, to my community. And, you know, with that, you know, there's all sorts of experiences in this country. It's so diverse. And I think the adoptee uh, experience is, is something that, that I don't think has been very much exposed. Um, so I started, you know, in the, but I, I didn't start out by, by thinking about any of it. Uh, what I, I started hearing from the community and started to see articles about adoptees who were being deported. And I just thought it was absolutely just, you know, insane that, you know, a child could be brought here as a, as an infant by U.S. citizens and, you know, money is exchanged. And, and that uh, 30 years later, through some loophole and paperwork, they could decide that you weren't an American citizen. Um, it's different from crossing a border or or coming here illegally or it's, it, you know, it's different in the sense that a child was brought here by U.S. citizens and they really had no choice uh, in the matter. And how are they supposed to know if they're brought here at two or three that the paperwork weren't, wasn't properly filed or, you know, I, I truly, it just like blew my mind. And then, you know, I felt that it must be a issue that can be easily resolved because it seems so straightforward. What I found out was that it's an incredibly, you know, difficult process to, once you're on that radar to uh, get the government to acknowledge that you're a U.S. citizen once you're in that, pro and then once you do get deported, it's almost impossible to find a pathway back to the country uh, because they see you as an illegal and, uh, you know, hearing hearing about this issue, I just my heart bled for the people going through it, and I I, I started asking around, and nobody really knew this was going on. You know, I started this journey about five years ago, and I just felt like this you know this issue needed to be brought to light, and that um, hope you know hopefully the right people would see it. What kinds of uh, research, you know, did you do? I, you mentioned this was a five-year process, um, you know, to, to craft this story. Did you have an opportunity to interview either, you know, there's many real-life cases of, of adoptees who faced or did experience deportation. Um, any opportunity to speak with maybe some of, like, the lawyers, you know, like the one that Vondi Curtis Hall plays in the film, to just kind of get some firsthand experiences of people who have lived this? Yeah. Yeah, um, I did speak with lawyers to get the legality of everything and how this is even possible, how like and the steps and, and you know, once you get like the deportation order, how difficult it is to reverse it. And, and um, you know, I had about maybe five or six adoptee consultants to make sure I got that aspect right. They hopefully trying to get as close to what it 
that feels like. I, I'll never know. I'm not adopted. So like, I just made sure that at least I could do everything I could to try to understand that and, and to uh, accurately, authentically uh, portray that experience. But, you know, even the adoptee experience is so diverse, you know, that one story is not going to represent everybody. Um, but, you know, um, also, I didn't want to portray Antonio as a saint. I really wanted to be human and, and be flawed and and like all of us are. And so as to not make it like a propaganda piece and more like, you know, this is a man's story. Because my main thing with this film is I wanted to make sure that it raises discussion and conversations. I'm not necessarily telling you what's right and wrong. And we did get in contact with uh, adoptees for advocacy. Um, you know, Christopher Larson read the script and he is actually awaiting deportation. He got, you know, or his orders that he's being deported and, and he's, you know, he went through the whole process. And, and then after I made the movie, I spoke to Anissa Drewster, who's at the end of the film, heard her experience. She was deported back to Panama and, um, and Christopher helped us. Uh, find some of those cases at the end of the film and they they range the, the experiences range uh, in terms of how it came to be and and why what triggered uh, the, the deportation process but um yeah I tried to do as much as I could yeah I mean I think that the, the your choice to close the film with the end credits with all of these examples of real life people who are, who are facing this I think kind of pulls the narrative into this brutal reality. And, and I've read over the years too, um, different accounts. I think there was that guy, Adam Crapser. I remember reading his story and he was deported to Korea. And I read another account where it was really, it was awful. It was actually, I think a man after he was deported, um, I think he took his life just because I mean, this was, yeah. Yeah. Philip Clay, you know, and then there was what recent one, you know, firefighter, you know, two different, I think, firefighters, like one was a Vietnamese refugee, but then like uh, there was another one I think was adoptee. But um, they range, you know, they really range. The experience really ranges uh, of how, you know, some people uh, apply for government jobs, like for the DOD, and they do a, like a uh, in-depth search into their past. And that's how they find out people get picked up for like drunk driving or like, you know, or um, people go to apply for a passport. And, and it's, you know, but I, I would say that Adoption in general, it, it's often spoken, it's looked through uh, rose-colored glasses and and it's like you rarely hear about the cases where you a child is adopted from another country and the parents don't want them. So they go through the foster care system or, you know, um, so, you know, um, that's what this particular story is, is. And, you know, like Monty Haynes and Philip Clay and Adam, like they all kind of you know, experience that side of, of adoption, international adoption. Um, so yeah, there's, there's quite a few. I mean, you know, these numbers, you know, at the time I was trying to film it, you know, I couldn't get exact numbers, but Christo Christopher was saying it could be a lot more. It's like uh, tens of thousands. It's hard to track because once it gets into the, the immigration system, I don't think they catalog, oh, who was an adoptee or... Mm -hmm. You mentioned, um, you know, earlier that Antonio, you intentionally wrote him as not a saint, you know, and I think sometimes when somebody tries to generate empathy for an injustice, there's this, this 
this desire to find the perfect victim, the sort of the flawless character. Um, can you talk to me a little bit more about sort of your decision to make your protagonist somebody with a criminal record, somebody who has made choices that, you know, his wife disagreed with, um, although I think they are very much grounded in, in sort of a justification, but just in crafting that, how you, how you believe that a, a real and a human character is, I guess, inherently empathetic? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the questions I ask in the film, apart from, you know, who dis who deserves to be an American, you know, who who gets to decide that is that are we allowed to have, you know, opportunity for redemption for second chances? You know, like, you know, I'm not trying to with the adoptees, like I'm not trying to say that, like anything negative. I just I just this particular story, I'm just showing that, like the criminal aspect is it can also be a factor for an excuse to kick somebody out it shouldn't matter like it shouldn't matter if he's committed crimes or not because he was adopted by u.s citizens you know and i think that you know at this the the the, the time we meet antonio in the film he's trying everything he can to just survive and make it right i mean he's just really like uh, doing trying to do everything right you know and and um you know he's married and he loves his wife and he has a stepkid that he loves and trying to do right by her and cares about how she feels and and you know he's working his ass off trying to find jobs and like in that sense like a lot of americans every day go through that and like he, at the same time like he's made some mistakes but haven't we all <laughs> Haven't we all made mistakes? Like not everybody, like uh, not everybody is like just, you know, live perfect lives where they haven't, you know, they, they haven't, you know, sinned in their life, you know? So I just, I, I, I think that it makes it much more accessible and realistic to just a, a just a human being. Um, also the sense of, I don't, I didn't want to make the film tell you what to think i don't want the film to tell you how to feel about this issue all i'm simply doing is saying okay here's a man that lives an asian american man that grew up in the south that didn't have the greatest childhood uh and he's trying to she's trying to do right and turn his life around and this is just his story and it just so happens that he was adopted and he's just and then you know the action of it all is that he finds out he's he was not an american citizen Mm-hmm. And, and particularly, I think the tragedy of the way in which he found this out is because um, he was essentially accosted by a racist cop because, you know, of, again, the, the sort of the circumstances. This isn't that much of a spoiler because it happens in act one of the film. But, you know, he, I mean, he gets in a fight with a cop, which I guess you could say he shouldn't have punched him back. But it was a bad. He was a bad cop. <laughs> Let's be yeah. real. Why did you choose Louisiana as the setting? You know, the Deep South. Antonio was for most of his life probably the only Asian he knew. Yes. Well, you know, in line with, you know, representing, you know, my community uh, and the myriad of stories that exist, uh, Asians don't exist just in uh, the coast. There we're all over this country, whether it's North Dakota, you know, Wisconsin, you know, also the South. And and uh, with that, 
I'm trying to normalize like who we are in this country. And I knew for a fact, if I put an Asian American man on screen with a Southern accent, immediately people would have an adverse reaction to that. Um, it's something I really had to deal with a lot in, you know, because everybody thought it was like, don't do it. You know, they're like, just why can't he just talk normally? And I said, no, 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 no. I have personal friends who talk like this, you know, who are from New Orleans, who are Asian, you know, like why, you know, like and it, it immediately makes us look at this country and think, OK, you know what? Like, yeah, it's not just it's so diverse. Right. And 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 uh, just as valid, you know, and I, I felt like that aspect of it uh, really questions the idea of what does an American mean? You know, who should be allowed to stay in this country? Um, you know, and the other reason is I wanted two Asian American cultures in one film. And, uh, you know, after the Vietnam War, a lot of Vietnamese refugees were, were relocated to the South, you know, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi and San Jose. But like, so there's a big, huge Vietnamese uh, community in, in New Orleans, New Orleans East and the West Bank. And, um, you know, and. So that aspect of it, and 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 uh, I think New Orleans also is a resilient town. You know, they've dealt with so many natural disasters, but they continue on. And I think that's what Antonio is. You know, I, th I think he embodies that. He 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 embodies that city. And and um, you know, I thought symbolically, it just it just made sense for me. It, it, New Orleans also doesn't feel like anywhere else in the U.S. It almost feels like a foreign country. It feels like it's its own place. It, the film has such a distinct sense of place. I mean, I think that the way in which you filmed it, as well as I think your frequent collaborators, like your cinematographer, Auntie Chang, and, and it just it's just sort of feels very steeped in the atmosphere of of, of that region. And, I, and I'm glad you included and, and just mentioned, you know, the, the Vietnamese American community there. Um, you know, we've seen it spotlighted in a few other projects set in that same place. Uh, I'll shout out Queen Sugar, which I think has done a good job of acknowledging the fact that, you know, Vietnamese exist in that area. Talk a little bit more about that juxtaposition between those two Asian, like those two Asian American identities, Antonio's experience being diametrically opposite from, you know, Parker's whole lifestyle and culture, um, particularly given that we often think of refugee narratives, you know, uh, immigrants who have come to this country by way of refugee status as a form of deprivation, like that we're like, oh, these poor people who have, you know, like, I think that that's often sort of the mainstream decision to portray um, people who have come to the country as refugees. That's dummy. That's some dummy stuff <laughs> because, <laughs> because that's not how they feel. You know, it's, uh, it's, but um, in American cinema, well, even television, you know, these days, usually you only have room for one, right? It's either just a Korean story or a Japanese story. And Why? You know, this this experience is so uh, diverse that like, uh, why can't we have stories about multiple Asian ethnicities in one film? And that was one of my goals in this in this project was to showcase that um, there's things that are similar, things that are different. And let's have conversations about it. And for this project in particular, that storyline, you know, Parker exists in the sense of to be sort of a mother figure to Antonio, but also like she's dying so 
how do you, when you compare your problems to someone whose life is about to end, you kind of have to take a step back and look at your situation with some honesty. So that's what she serves. But then on top of that, her being Vietnamese and having come to this country, um, you know, he gets a glimpse of maybe what his returning to hit to, to, to where he came from could be like without being at one to one, like without it being A to B, it's like, okay, this isn't a direct co comparison, but like, this is what it could maybe be like. And the sense of like going to that party in the middle of the film and being like, this feels familiar, but like, I've never experienced anything like this and feeling weird about that. And the sense of like, where do I belong? I mean, is this like, is this sort of situation more right? You have the blood memory of it, but like you've never had the experience of it. Um, it's questioning all those things. You know, all these things are supposed to make Antonio and also the audience have these feelings that aren't necessarily put into words. Like you're not, I'm not like my goal isn't to try to verbalize these feelings. It's just to get you to feel them. Um, you know, so that's the purpose of that whole storyline. And, and, you know, speaking with some honesty, like, I filmed it in New Orleans East. I, you know, the person who plays Lin Dan Pham's dad is the owner of that house. You know, uh, like, it's like everything about it. Like, a lot of my Vietnamese friends from New Orleans are in that scene. You know, like, uh, I made sure that everybody, every single person in that scene was Vietnamese from New Orleans. You know, like, like it's authentic as it can get, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes that's what I think is maybe lacking at times is like, okay, someone has really great intentions, but like, you know, it doesn't feel super authentic. Mm -hmm. I think I feels very apparent that even though, I mean, I think that Blue Bayou is a departure from both Gook and Miss Purple, which were, you know, set in Southern California where you grew up and, and are more centrally about Korean Americans like you know, who kind of grew up the way that you did. Um, I'm not trying to say that it was identical, but it's clear that Blue Bio comes from real personal experiences that you have absorbed and, and, and that, that you know of. So um, it resonates. We always end our uh, podcast interview with two questions for our guests. Um, the first one is called Hollywood Remixed. When you're looking at over sort of immigrant narratives that Hollywood has put forth in the past, is there a specific one that you would sort of revise or even just like a trope that you would like to kind of <laughs> put an end to or, or, or make some changes to? Uh, me personally, the answer to the question is no, because why go back to that shit? You know, like <laughs> uh, if there's an issue with it, like I don't have really have that much of a desire to like make someone else's wrong. Right. You know, like we have so many damn stories to tell. Like we're just at the tip of the iceberg. We have so many rich, beautiful stories that, 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 that range from, you know, Malaysian to Indonesian to Southeast, like to Filipino to, you know, and, and Japanese Korea. Like there's so many stories to tell. Why would we fixate on something that came before that wasn't even authored by us, you know? Um, so for me, you know, I am in the sort of mindset is like, that's why I've been working so hard and, and really trying to tell so many stories, you know, people go, Hey, you know, like, just don't burn your cachet. Like you just did this film and it did well. And why don't you use that to 
go do a bigger studio film. Well, because I don't know if I'll be able to tell these stories in the studio system. And I, there's, there really is so many stories to tell and not enough time. So I'm really well servicing the community by doing what I'm doing. And I don't want to focus on some weird racist, you know, a representation of us like from the 80s or something you know or even earlier than that we can get more value from telling the original you know and and just moving forward it does feel like there is more of a path to doing that now uh, you know blue bayou was uh your first partnership with macro and and i think that you know literally six years ago a, a company like macro didn't exist that type of alternative model for for production and financing that is you know sort of poc centered i mean you didn't have that you you pr pretty much had to just go fund me your own films like you did with your first one the second question is hidden gem which is if we don't and i totally respect that uh that what you're saying is, is, you know, let's not dwell on the mistakes of the past. However, is there something sort of a positive example, a hidden gem, an undocumented immigrant narrative, um, or if not a narrative, a, cur a current present day resource that you can recommend to um, our listeners who have seen Blue Bayou, who kind of really want to get involved more, if not actively participating, at least understanding this experience a little bit better? Yeah. You know, and I'm not opposed to someone else doing it. It's just me personally, like I, I don't really, you know, find that fulfilling, you know, for myself. So I, you know, I, if by all means, if someone else who wants, wants to do it, like, please, you know, um, also the other thing is I'm not terribly political, you know, I'm just seeing this injustice here and I just, my heart bleeds for these people going through this. But I'm not like I don't claim to be like a super politically knowledgeable person. I'm just doing what I feel is right and, and trying to expose something that I feel is wrong. So, you know, I think what people can do is, you know, uh, well, for this particular issue is is maybe research about what's going on and see if you can, you know, help, you know, to write the particular particular congressmen that that need to be. Uh, contacted and and swing some of these votes to to make sure that some of these incremental legislation initiatives can pass. Um, I think doing that kind of research, also talking about the film, the more awareness. Like my big thing is, yeah, like I said, I'm I'm not that knowledgeable, but a big thing is the more sort of spotlight an issue gets, the more it's harder to to ignore. And for something like this, people are working on it. But the lack of attention it's getting is what's allowing it to be kind of just put on the side. Now, if it becomes like a big deal and people are like, wait, wait, why is this happening? Why are adoptees that are brought as children being deported? That makes no sense. Also, like there's a Child Citizenship Act of 2000. Why are kids adopted after 2000 getting granted automatic citizenship and no one before? You know, the more people know about this issue, the more it's harder for them to not address it, mm -hmm. you know? So I think that, um, you know, that was my purpose with the film is like to bring it to a more wider audience than just a news article. It's harder to ignore. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that is the like apex of what 
this business, film and television and narratives and storytelling can do is it can kind of make it a little bit more real, a little bit more visceral for people than a news story can. I think that Blue Bayou does a good job of that. Blue Bayou will be released September 17th. Justin Chan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Jose Antonio Vargas and Justin Chan for joining us today for this important conversation. You can learn more about Jose's personal story through his memoir, Dear America, and find resources on how to responsibly and accurately tell stories about immigrants and immigration at defineamerican.com. Justin's new film, Blue Bayou, is out in theaters September 17th. Stay tuned next week when Dear White People star Logan Browning joins us to talk about Black college life as seen on TV and in the movies. And please subscribe to Hollywood Remixed on the podcast platform of your choice so that you don't miss it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.